In Luke chapter 4, the gospel writer tells us that Jesus walks into a synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, and he's handed the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. And he reads a section from the scroll uh, that comes from Isaiah 61, and after he finishes reading it, he says to everybody that's in his hearing that morning, he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled. Essentially pointing to himself as the fulfillment of what is read in Isaiah 61. And, and if you're familiar with that passage of the Old Testament, it's filled with some incredible imagery, imagery that we just sang about. And, and so I want to read to you the excerpts here from Isaiah 61, some of the same verses that Jesus read on that day as a reminder of what Jesus accomplishes and what he does for each and every one of us. These are the words that Jesus himself fulfilled. He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. For they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. For I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Let's pray. Father, you are the only one who can. You're the only one who gives us beauty from ashes, joy instead of mourning, glory instead of shame. And Father, we come into your presence this morning. We come into this time of worship, knowing that there are mountains in our way, there are seas before us, and yet you can move back the waters and allow us to pass on dry ground. You walk with us in valleys as much as the mountaintops for your good shepherd. And Father, we look forward to those moments in our lives where we see you move so mightily, where we see you move so tremendously. And we look for that provision, we look for that strength, we look for that grace now in this present moment as we come to your word. We come to these holy scriptures, God, let them remind us that only you can. Help us to not look to the things of this world or the things that can so easily lead us astray. Let's not put our hope in things that so easily fail, but we trust in you. And we anticipate the day where we see joy and praise rise up from all nations before you. Father, we thank you for there truly is nothing better than you. And so we worship you in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, good morning, church. It's so good to see you all this morning. What a, what a beautiful reminder 
uh, to be encouraged that truly God is with us and he can do things that no one else and nothing else really can. So I, I don't know what you carry into uh, your day today. I don't know what you carry into this room, uh, but whatever burdens, whatever weight is upon your shoulder, bring it to the Lord and trust that he can take all those things and make something beautiful uh, and that he desires to and he will and he wants to. Uh, as we get started today, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 6. Uh, we'll get there here momentarily. As we've done over the last few weeks, I want to take the first part of this message today to just continually remind you of some of the updates of things that are on the horizon with the start of a new school year. Uh, most of these updates have really centered around uh, our focus for that 930 hour that we're referring to as UBC Enriched. And we've talked over the last several weeks about a lot of those, those changes and some of those um, updates and, and kind of the new approach that we're presenting starting here in the next few weeks. And we're really excited about a lot of it. We, we've talked about the context in terms of what's driving a lot of the philosophy. We've talked about the structure of those classes, the content of those classes, um, and just really, really excited about the opportunities that we're going to be able to engage collectively as a church family. And, and so with having gone through a lot of those different updates over the last few weeks, I want to just kind of remind you as we transition today and we start thinking a little bit more about discipleship groups and the training that's today, the launch that's uh, t uh, next week, in terms of how all that all works together and the importance of it, just to kind of remind you that uh, we have those, that imagery of that house that has three different spaces where relationships really begin to, to be fostered and flourish, right? You have the exterior of the house, and then you have those common spaces like your kitchen, your living room, um, in those areas where relationships are forged, but then your home has a more personal space that only a few really get a chance to see and be a part of. And in, in the same way that we have those three distinct spaces in our homes for our relationships there, we want that in our church, right? So 930, um, UBC and Richmond, that, that's kind of that progression. That's part of why we've been emphasizing it because when you primarily engage in the 1030 worship service, that's kind of the exterior of the house. That's that first space. But then UBC and Rich is that common area that it's the gathering together in a, in a larger group of community that allows relationships to begin to flourish. But we must have that third space. And that's our discipleship groups. Right? That, that's a huge part of, of the lifeblood of this church and the philosophy of this church. And so when we start talking about these events and these trainings and these launch uh, things that we've got on the horizon, I can't stress to you enough how important it is from my point of view for all of you to engage in that pursuit of that third space, right? Because I truly believe we need that space as individuals just to be healthy, right? To have rich, meaningful connection and community and relationship. But that's also one of the primary arenas that we really try to emphasize how we become equipped to make disciples and to live out this great commission. And so, so I just want you to know, like one of the things I constantly evaluate and look for in terms of evaluating folks' uh, assimilation into the life of UBC is engagement with discipleship groups. So I really, really hope you take the time uh, to uh, sign up next week and to, to really integrate into the life of this church by engaging in discipleship groups. I, I can tell you personally, man, it's meant so much to me to have people in my life uh, in this church that know me and that I get to know in that more personal way, right? And, and it's not just about creating those deeper friendships, but the accountability that comes with it and the way that it helps prompt me to pursue God's call on my life. It, it's something that I think is so incredibly important. And so I really um, ex am excited about what's on the horizon for all of us. Now, so many of our discipleship groups got launched 
in the, in the midst of the pandemic, right? Like literally out of necessity. And, and so we are continuing to mature in our progression as a church in terms of how do we continue to uh, shore up the identity of discipleship groups? How do we help people get integrated? And so we want to continue to mature in that process. And so the more you engage and the more you participate, the more we can learn and mature as a church to really pursue all three of those arenas and spaces. So uh, I want to encourage you to be there and be a part of it. Uh, Again, all of those things collectively are just uh, ways that we try to live out so much of what we've been talking about throughout this year, which is this concept and this theme of renewal, right? What does it mean to live as God's renewed people? That's been our theme for the whole year. And we've used the book of Romans as a guide, right? Like that's kind of been our anchor is to continually walk through the scriptures and and the letter to Paul's church or to the church in Rome from Paul. And as we've used that as a guide throughout the year, we've kind of deviated from those texts to look at some sub-series that helps us consider this concept of renewal from a different vantage point. If you think back at the beginning of the year, we talked about the renewed self and we focused in on the story of Ruth and Naomi. And, and kind of using that as a template and, a, and an example of what it means to find that renewal in our own personal lives. And then a little bit later in the year, more recently, uh, we took some time to look at the renewed family. And we focused in on the story of Abraham and Sarah and their family and, and a lot of the different stories that are revealed to us in the book of Genesis. And so we've used these sub-series along the way. And so today, we'll finish up Romans chapter 6. And then starting next week, we're going to have another sub-series that is going to take a chance for us to look at this idea of renewal through the lens of the renewed church. And I'm really excited about this series. We're gonna actually walk through different parts of the book of Acts and look at different stories in the book of Acts that help us get an understanding of, I mean, what does a renewed church look like? What does it look like for God's people to gather together together in community and live out this this call towards renewal? And, And the book of Acts is a great way for us to look at a lot of those examples. And so that's gonna be our focus that will take us through the rest of August and really through the first part of September. Once we finish that, we're gonna go back to Romans chapter seven and finish chapter seven for a little bit, which will then kind of set some appropriate groundwork for us to have another sub-series later in the fall that's gonna focus on doubt, right? A lot of different questions that can contribute to people uh, wrestling with doubt and struggling with doubt. That, that's a A very important thing that we want to be able to foster here in this church is to make sure that we have space to wrestle with doubt and to ask very tough questions. And so we'll have a series dedicated to that later in the fall before going back to Romans 8 to finish out the year. So I'm really excited um, about what's on the horizon as we head into a new school year and really hope that you all um, are joining me in that excitement and we can come together next week to look at uh, the renewed church. But today, we'll focus in on the conclusion of Romans chapter six. As we turn to verse 15 in this chapter, I wanna remind you that for the last several weeks as we looked at the first 14 verses, the image that I wanted you to kind of have in your mind's eye was the image of baptism, right? That the first 14 verses of Romans six really helped give a biblical framework and understanding to the symbolism that we see in baptism. Right, that when we dip somebody under the water, that's being united with Jesus and his death. When we bring them out of the water, that's being united with Jesus and his resurrection and being brought into new life. We talked about the the meaning of the exchange when you hear somebody say, what's your profession of faith? And the response is, Jesus is Lord. And how that can be further explained in verses 12 through 14, where Paul talks about offering ourselves as instruments of righteousness. Right, so we've used this imagery of baptism for the first 14 verses, but now that we get to verse 15, Paul's gonna bring us a new image, right, a new picture 
that we can really begin to wrestle with. We're going to go from the image of baptism to the image of slavery. All right, let's see how Paul uses this to kind of reiterate so many of the points that he's already introduced in this chapter. Follow along with me in verse 15. It says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations, just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. So now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. And what benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, so as Paul draws this chapter to conclusion, verse 15, as he transitions to this new image of slavery, sounds a lot like verse 1. Like if you just were to compare the two verses, you, you would see a lot of similarities. Verse 1 uh, says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Sounds very similar to verse 15 that reads, What then? Shall we sin because we are no longer under the law but under grace? By no means. Right? What Paul is doing and is reiterating here in verse 15 is he's establishing the norms and the expectations of grace. Right? He's helping us understand how grace works. And he's doing so by answering a very critical question that most any of us are likely to ask whenever we begin to really encounter the implications of grace, right? And the fundamental question is what? If I'm under grace, does that give me license to sin, right? Can, can I just keep on sinning so that grace can increase? Is that what grace is there for? That's kind of the fundamental question. And, and Warren did a great job when he introduced Romans 6 for us several weeks ago, and he, he kind of took on the first four verses. And I think part of the way that, that Warren said it, one of his first points was, uh, God's inexhaustible grace is not permission to sin, right? That's essentially the question that Paul is answering. And it's such an important question that he's coming back to it now in verse 15, right? Though you are under grace, it does not give you permission to sin, right? Can we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. That's a really important part for us to understand because it is a natural question whenever we encounter the implications of grace, right? Whether that's somebody else that's trying to understand the gospel or even our own journey into faith. I've seen this on several occasions. I remember when I was a missions pastor at First Arlington, we would take these mission trips to New York. And we'd go to New York because it's, it's so diverse and there are so many different areas and neighborhoods where you can engage with different cultures. And so we would go to these areas in Harlem, uh, these particular neighborhoods in Harlem that were, had a high concentration of West Africans. And we would engage in conversations and find opportunities to share the gospel. And I remember meeting a, a, a man who was working in a market there in Harlem, and he was from Senegal. I don't know if you're familiar with Senegal at all, um, but it is 90% Muslim, less than 5% Christian. 
right? So it is, is saturated through the religion of Islam. In fact, I remember uh, some of the resources that the missionaries we partnered with in New York gave us were uh, audio Bible translations and West African languages, right? So I actually tell this guy, I'm like, hey, I actually have an audio translation of the scriptures in your language, and he didn't believe me. He was like, no, you don't. And I was like, no, I really do. And he's like, no, you don't, because in his mind, there were no Christians in his country. And he was like, there, there's no way you could have it because there's not a single person in my country that believes that, so there's no way you got it translated. That's how big of a gap it was, right, just for context of the conversation. So we start talking about the gospel, and we start talking about the differences between Christianity and Islam, and the subject of grace comes up, and he couldn't connect the dots. Right? Like, it was such a leap for him, and here's the reason why. For him, the more you thought about grace and kind of what he had seen in his time in America in particular was that grace was permission to sin. That's how he saw it. And one of the reasons he had drawn those conclusions was because of the rhetoric about America being a Christian nation. And so here he is, he's, he's in this culture in New York and in this country, and he sees all the morality on display, immorality on display, and he says, see, that's what happens. Right, when you're given grace and you just can do whatever you want, you, you get to live however you want. And that was a massive disconnect for him. And so there was a lot that he and I had to really begin to unpack and me to explain, no, here's the norms of grace. Here's what grace actually achieves. But I couldn't fault him because part of his questions and part of his own conclusions were true of my own testimony. Right, like I've shared with you all before, I, I prayed the prayer to receive Jesus as Lord when I was 10 years old. And it was authentic, it was sincere, right? like it was genuine. But what I did after praying that prayer was essentially reduce Christianity to this kind of very simplistic way of living, right? For me, believing in Jesus was really just believe that he existed. And I was like, check, got that part done. And because he offered grace, what I thought that meant was is that after I die or when Jesus comes back and I'm standing in front of him, all I have to do is confess my sins, say I'm sorry, and I get to go to heaven. And that was it, right? And so what that meant, because that was my understanding, is that for the next six years, I did whatever I wanted, and I didn't care. I absolutely lived a life where sin was my master, right? Because for me, that's what grace did. It, it existed so I could continue to sin and just ask for forgiveness. This is a natural response when we really actually consider the implications of grace. And Paul is incredibly clear here on two different occasions. Can you continue to sin so that grace may increase? By no means. That is not how grace works. That's a misunderstanding of grace. In fact, I think Romans 6 works really, really well with Galatians 6. Right, if you're familiar with that part of the scriptures in Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, he talks about this same concept. But here's how he says it there. He says, don't be deceived. Right, that's the deception that we could fall into, that that's how grace works. He says, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. You will reap what you sow. To the one who sows what the flesh desires will reap destruction, but to the one who sows what the spirit desires will reap everlasting life. Right, that's exactly what I think Paul is hitting on here in Romans 6. We have been given this incredible grace through Jesus Christ that absolutely sets us free from the bondage of sin, Right? But it does not give us permission to keep on sinning. If we were to take that sort of mindset and to continue to just live in that sort of defiance, that is making a mockery of God. 
And the scripture is clear. You cannot make a mockery of God. You cannot make a mockery of his grace. That is not how this works. So Paul's very clear on all of these things, right? And I, and I think it's important for us to recognize that because we live in a time where that can very easily be misconstrued and prey upon those natural questions, right? Like what we, what we constantly encounter and what's not uncommon to hear in our culture and even in some churches nowadays is we take this concept of grace, right? We, t- we take this concept of grace and kind of refer to it as love and we've hijacked the word love and essentially have defined love as to being full permission and tolerance to live however you want, right? To indulge in whatever it pleasures, desires, mindset, whatever it is that you want. And that that's what God's love and grace allows. And I'm here to tell you, that's not the gospel. That is not what grace achieves, right? And so the question that we really need to ask ourselves as we enter into the rest of chapter six is, okay, well then what does it achieve? What does it look like? When I embrace this grace and all that it accomplishes for me, what, what results? And that's where Paul begins to paint this image of being a slave, right? This is a really important image. It's, it's another way for us to understand our identity in Christ. And, and it's, it's one that conveys this idea of captivity and bondage, right? Now, here's what's interesting is that as we walk through these, the rest of these verses uh, that you have here in chapter six is what we discover is that there's really no middle ground, right? Like you actually are never truly set free. The freedom that you think you've achieved is really just servitude to God. So you're a slave no matter what, right? Like you're always a slave. That is a fundamental piece of our identity, right? And so what Paul's conveying is that there is no third option. There is no middle ground. There is no alternative. You have one of two choices. Either God will be your master or sin will. That's it. But your identity is one as a slave, and so you have to ask yourself, which master will I serve? Which one will I actually be loyal to? Which one will I actually commit to? And so the concept of slavery is is one that we have to really kind of get comfortable with, right? Because a lot of times we fool ourselves into thinking that the freedom that has been secured for us really creates autonomy, right? It, It creates this kind of personal liberty, and that's not what the scripture teaches. You go from being a slave to this master to being a slave to this one, right? But there's a significant difference between the two, right? And and there's an incredible um, reward and benefit to one versus the other. And so when you begin to really try to dive into the understanding of what it means to live in this sort of servant-hearted servitude towards God, here's what we really discover, is that it's really about relationship, right? That that essentially what we're trying to say here is that this isn't uh, a transition into perfect states, right? It's not like, okay, I believe in God's grace and so he forgives me my sin, so now I'm perfect and so because God is my master, I'll never sin again, right? That's problematic if we hear it that way because what we all soon discover is that, well, no, I actually still stumble, I still fall, I still make mistakes, sin is still a part of this struggle. Right? So part of what we're seeing is that this is a relationship that can actually be sustained despite some of those failings and some of those mistakes. The difference is habitual sin or consistent disobedience or, or a heart that really doesn't want to see God as master at all. And, and so it's really about relationship and probably one of the key ways to understand this relationship comes from verse 17. Right? 
it references how this obedience is an obedience from the heart, right? It's a heart issue, right? The rest of that verse in verse 17 talks about an obedience to the pattern of the one to whom now you've given your allegiance, right? And that's just kind of a fancy way of referring to Jesus. Jesus is that pattern. Our allegiance, our loyalty is now to him, but it's from the heart. And, and that's what makes this so um, compelling and so profound and really kind of a mystery is because the reality is, church, we can fool each other, can't we? Like, you can fool me. You can fool the people you're sitting next to today. Man, you can put on your best dress, your best face, and come in here and give the best answers, right? You can absolutely fool people, but you can't fool God. Like, he knows where your heart rests. He knows what your heart truly desires. He knows what your heart is truly following, when you're truly repenting, when you're truly pursuing him, or when you're truly pursuing sin. We can't fool God. He cannot be mocked. Right? And so he's going to know where your loyalties really lie, where your allegiance really rests. And so the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, what does my heart convey? Like if we really just kind of do our own little introspection and evaluate our heart, what relationship are we trying to foster? Right, the relationship that genuinely seeks the heart of God, that seeks to, to follow God and sees him as Lord of our lives? Or are we trying to seek our own self-seeking? Right, our own sinful desires, our own natural impulses. What does your heart say? It's a matter of the heart. That's the sort of relationship that this Scripture is really kind of pointing to our attention. Now, as he makes that case, you get to that last paragraph of chapter 6, and he gives us some really good things to think about as we evaluate, man, where does my heart really rest? It, it essentially kind of creates this, this picture of two different pathways, right? Depending on your master, depending on who you follow, is going to lead in two different directions, right? If you choose to have sin as your master, it's going to bear a certain fruit. It's going to have a certain result and impact on your life. And as you read through that last paragraph, look at some of the terminology that is utilized to describe when we give ourselves to sin as our master, right? It leads to impurity. It leads to ever-increasing wickedness, to shame, and then to death, right? So think about that, right? Like, like when we truly live for ourselves and we commit our hearts to that sort of kind of a direction, what we're going to find is this, this trajectory of ever-increasing wickedness. And that, to me, is maybe the way to think through the differences and how do we discern where is my heart really led. We're not going to be perfect, right? But we should see a trajectory in terms of where our life is headed. If we're truly choosing sin as our master, that trajectory is going to point towards ever-increasing wickedness. But if we choose God as our master, according to 1 Corinthians, that's a path towards ever-increasing glory. Right? It's a totally different pathway. Now, it, it's not just this nice, smooth, steady climb where we get better and better and better. Man, it's like this, right? It's like the stock market. It's probably a bad example. But it's, it's like, you know what I mean? It's up and down as you still kind of make your way towards glory, right? There's highs and lows along the way. But that's, that's what we're going to see is that when you choose sin as your master, your trajectory is going to be more and more towards the life of wickedness. Right, which ultimately leads in shame, leads to shame, leads to disgrace, leads to embarrassment, right? And then the ultimate destination down that pathway is death. And so what makes it so tricky, here's why we have to have moments and, and messages like this where we actually 
kind of do the hard work of evaluating our hearts because Proverbs 14, 12 tells us what? There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. Right, because of the world we live in, because of the voices of culture, because of our own impulses, we're gonna encounter all these different situations and circumstances and, and moments where we're gonna discern what should we do, how should we live, how should we react, and there's gonna be a way that seems right, that seems good, that seems fulfilling, fulfilling, that seems pleasurable or whatever it is, and in the end, it's going to lead to death. Like, we have to have a clear way of thinking about these things. Right? We have to recognize that we can deceive ourselves and we have to constantly evaluate, who am I really serving here? Right? Which is what leads us to the alternative. Right? If that's one pathway, that it leads to death, well, then the other pathway is to say, okay, when I choose God as my master, where does it lead? And according to this passage of Scripture in this paragraph, the, the answer is holiness and eternal life. I love that. Right? The idea of holiness is not something we've talked about extensively uh, for quite some time. Uh, but I think it's a, it's a beautiful picture for us to consider when we're thinking about this identity of being a servant and a slave before God, right? When I choose that path and I choose him as my master, it leads me down a road of holiness and then ultimately to eternal life. So what is holiness, right? So the idea of holiness, when you look at that definition, it speaks to a dedication to the Lord and to moral purity. And I think it's really important for us to hear the whole definition there. Because if you're like me, a lot of times when you think of holiness, you really just kind of associate it more with moral purity, right? Which is why you get the phrase holier than thou and people that kind of act that based on their conduct and behavior, they're better than others, right? I mean, it, it, we often assign it towards moral purity. But the first part of that definition speaks to dedication to the Lord, right? It reinforces the idea of relationship. And that definition should teach us that relationship is absolutely intimately connected with moral purity. Right? And so here's maybe a way to think of holiness, and, and this is something that, that I think we would want to be able to recognize here, is that when you think about like being a parent, uh, you know, Jennifer and I, we have lots of rules for our kids, right? and we've worked hard to think about what are good rules to try to create a good home and an upbringing for our kids, and so whether it's limitations on screen time or what they can eat or how they treat each other, like we have a whole lot of rules and regulations for them. Okay, and so when, when our children hear what those rules and those guidelines are, if they are continually defiant and consistently disregard those rules, like ultimately what that says to me is not just that they don't care about the rule, it means they don't care about me or about her. Like they don't care about our relationship. They don't care about what I say. They don't care about what we care about. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it absolutely reflects upon their view of myself and my wife and our relationship. Similarly, when I see our children listen to these rules and embrace them and follow them and be obedient to them and, and complicit with them and all those different things, what that says is, okay, they actually do care about the relationship. They actually do care what we say and how we say it and what we are passionate about. Like it, it shows us that there's something meaningful going on here. That to me is holiness. Like that's what we're after. Right? It's about the relationship. If we commit ourselves to just a way of living based on our own desires and we choose sin as our master and all those different things, then ultimately what we're saying is, I don't really care what God thinks. I don't really care what he wants. I don't really care about that relationship. But when we choose God as our master and we actually care about 
holiness, and we actually care about that way of living, it's not just saying that I care about moral purity, it's about I care about the Lord. I care about my relationship to him. My heart desires what his heart desires. And what we find over and over again in the scripture is that he calls us to holiness because he is holy. Right? Like, he is holy. God cares about our holiness because that's who he is. And that's something that we find very clearly stated in 1 Peter, which I think is another way for us to complement um, our discussion this morning, right, is to, to, again, see how this is reiterated from different passages and in different ways. You go look at 1 Peter chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but I'll, I'll read it to you this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1 talks about this in a very powerful way. It says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Right? I love that, right? It, it sounds so much like Romans 12, right? That, that you want to be able to be transformed. You don't want to conform to your former, former evil desires. And in that transformation, the way that you really begin to embrace that new identity as slaves and all those different things is to be as obedient children, right? That's the identity, to, to follow what your father has taught you. And the more you get to know who your father is and know your father's heart, we discover our God is holy. Therefore, he cares about our holiness, right? Never believe otherwise. He cares about your holiness. He cares about what you give your life to and what your heart is focused on. He absolutely cares about those things because he wants his children to reflect his very nature. Now, First Peter continues with, to me, what is another very important point that kind of allows us to transition to a bit of a conclusion here. He continues in that chapter, First uh, Peter chapter 1, he says, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. So I love the way that this kind of brings another important piece for us to consider this morning. When we think about choosing God as our master, when we think about being able to truly live a life that is committed to obedience to him and this life of holiness, part of what we need to be reminded is that our liberation, like our freedom from having sin as our master, right, th that did not come cheaply. It came at a tremendous cost. Like, we were purchased. We were redeemed. And the way that we were purchased was not with some silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. This is not cheap grace, and we must not live as if it is, right? And the more that we give ourselves to our own sinful desires, our own selfish impulses, the more we're demonstrating to our God and to our Father that we think this was a cheap grace that we can take advantage of. And so what First Peter reminds us of is exactly how our freedom was secured, 
how it was that we were actually being able to break free from the bonds of sin and death and to embrace this opportunity to live a life of holiness. It comes by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It is an incredibly amazing, powerful gift. And our lives should demonstrate that we recognize its worth and its significance. It's yours. It's ours. That's the question that Paul presents to us. And so here, here is the application for us, and I'll, I'll wrap us up. The application to me is pretty important, how these images work together in terms of going from the image of baptism to this image of slavery. Right, so, so a lot of times I think the reason we, we struggle in our understanding of discipleship and our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, and it's kind of evidence in the testimony I shared about my own personal walk earlier, is that a lot of times we can reduce discipleship to decisionism. Right, that all I really need to do is make a decision at some point in my life. Right, I just need to ask Jesus into my heart. Uh, I just need to pray a prayer, walk down an aisle. I just need to get baptized. And if I've made that decision, I'm good, right? Like that's a lot of times what we think. And, and a lot of times that's even how we consider baptism, right? It's this, it's this one significant moment. If that was done, then it, it's good for forever. But the reality is, and, and the imagery of slavery essentially tells us, man, you're, you're never actually done making that decision, right? The application for this, to live this out, is to recognize that that's something you do not once but every single day what that means for us church is like tomorrow when you wake up and you get ready for work or you get ready for whatever is on the horizon and on your agenda tomorrow you you start your day by asking yourself and and declaring to God today God I'm going to unite myself in the death of Jesus today God I'm going to unite myself with the resurrection of Jesus I'm going to be fused together with him and I'm going to do everything I can today, God, to be able to consider myself dead to sin and alive to you. I'm going to do everything I can to offer myself as an instrument of righteousness. Right? I'm going to make sure that I declare for this world to see that you are my Lord and Master. And we make that decision tomorrow and the day after and the day after and every day for every moment that God allows us to live. That's what it means to embrace this idea of being a slave to righteousness and to seeing him as our Lord and as our master. That's the sort of decision that we have to make time and time and time again. Not just once, but it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle that embraces that. And what I want to encourage you with this morning, church, is that it leads you down an incredible path. It leads you out of despair it leads you out of the ashes, it leads you out of the grave, and it leads you into joy and dancing and celebration, right? It allows us to see beauty instead of ashes, gardens instead of graves. It allows us to see holiness and the value of holiness and, and explaining to others the importance of living a life accordingly because that's exactly who our God is. It allows us to truly exemplify to the people around us that this was not some cheap grace that you can take advantage of, but it was purchased by the precious blood of Jesus, and that's what we hold dear. And we know that it will lead us to exactly where God has designed and destined each and every heart that loves him to go. And that's what makes Romans 6.23 so powerful. 
right? It takes all these things that Paul has talked about throughout the whole chapter and the duality of making those choices and it just presents it to us in this very succinct and very meaningful verse, right? It says you, you essentially every day get a chance to wake up and see two roads before you, right? One road is, is the road of sin and in the end it leads to death. You make that choice, the wages of that life is death. And it's gonna seem right to you. It's gonna seem like the path to go, but don't choose that road. Rather, recognize the free gift of God that was purchased for you by the blood of the Lamb that leads to holiness and everlasting life. Every day, you have a chance to choose which road will you walk down. Let us all choose the road that leads to holiness and everlasting life. Because we know, church, that when we arrive at that moment, that's exactly what we'll see. That our pursuit of holiness will ultimately become the object of our praise. Right? That, that, that the center of that everlasting life will be our God, our King, and we will get a chance to behold him in all of his glory. And we'll be able to behold the one that truly made the heavens and the earth. We're gonna be able to behold the one that parted the seas and allowed people to pass through on dry ground in a tremendous story of liberation. We're gonna be able to behold the one that took on flesh and dwelt among us. We get to behold the one who endured the cross and scorned its shame so that you and I could have triumph and victory over death. We will behold the lamb that was slain, seated on his throne, and we will get a chance to join with the elders in this one simple song of praise, holy, holy, Holy is the one who is and was and is to come. That is where our hearts should be focused. It is where our hearts should be surrendered. So let us do that today, church, in joyful surrender as we walk the road of holiness in anticipation of the promise of everlasting life and the worship of our holy God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we thank you again for who you are and what you do for us. God, we thank you that you give us the opportunity to be set free from the bonds of sin, God. And we confess that there are so many times that as we encounter that free gift of grace, God, we, we take advantage of it, we take it for granted, and we treat it as if it is a cheap gift. Help us to repent of those things and to recognize the precious value of the blood of Christ that secures for us a new life that allows us to count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to you, God, and to offer ourselves towards righteousness. Father, to be slaves to you more than anything else. Father, help us to pursue such a life, God. Help us to desire that sort of holiness, not because we're obsessed with some sort of morality, but because we love you and we see that you are holy. And so help us this morning, God, to be reminded of how all those things work together, not by our own will, our own merit, but because our heart loves you. And we are so grateful for you. And so this morning, God, help us to eliminate everything else that can so easily lead us astray. Help us to let everything else in this world just fall to the side, God, and to fade into the background. Let us not feel pressure to perform. Let us feel as though we're children who are dearly loved. 
and who dearly love you. Help us look to nothing else but the cross. Help us to see you, our creator. For it's only in a clear vision of you, God, that any of these things are possible. So help us to restore such love and devotion, to behold your holiness, and to give you the praise you so richly deserve. We love you, Father, and we pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.